If you have your Bibles, would you open it up to Galatians chapter 3? Lord willing, we'll go from Galatians, the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Adopted. If you're brave enough, if you are adopted, would you raise your hand? Excellent. Anybody adopt kids in your life? Do you have adopted children? In the Bible, it talks about adoption and that our spiritual relationship with God is likened to adoption. Let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll talk some more about adoption. Father, I thank you that you have adopted us and that, Father, we have a brand new standing with you because of your adoption of us, your work and your love for us. Father, would you speak to each of us? Lord, would you speak clearly and boldly to our hearts and our minds? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Adoption. Adoption is something uh, that it's giving to uh, another, giving to anyone the name and place and privilege of a son or a daughter who is not born a son or a daughter by birth. That's what adoption is. You take somebody, we, we ought to understand this, but we take somebody who maybe uh, parents had, uh, abandoned them, maybe it was a, a blended family of some sort, and one person adopts the other person. And so they had no blood relationship. They had no rights or privilege according to birth, but they are given those through this right of what we call adoption. In a natural sense, in the Bible, we see that Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. Do you remember that? Back in Genesis, when, um, or excuse me, Exodus, uh, there was a decree throughout the land to kill all the firstborn male children, all the male children, matter of fact. And Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses' mom didn't want to kill him, and so she hid him in the reeds or the, the, the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter saw him, and adopted him. So Moses became the part of the royal family, not because he was born into it, but simply by the right of adoption. Nationally, we see that the Lord adopted the nation of Israel. Sometimes we mistakenly think that, that God picked Israel because they were uh, a better people than any other people, and that's just the opposite. He picked them because it was a way to demonstrate his power and his authority. He picked them because it was part of his sovereignty. So he adopted the nation of Israel to call his children. And then you and I, we are adopted spiritually. It's an act of God's grace by which he brings men and women into the number or the, the family of the redeemed. It's God by his grace that would redeem us and adopt us, making us partakers of the blessings. Do you understand that you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a partaker. You have all the rights and heritage of somebody who is adopted into the family of God. Adoption represents brand new relationships in which you and I are introduced to justification. It's just as if you had never sinned. We are introduced to privileges connected with your Adoption into the family of God. 
Let's look at a couple of things on this idea of being adopted or the, the privileges. One of the things, because of our spiritual adoption, we have an interest in God's particular love. You and I, one of the aspects that is a evidence that you are adopted is you recognize that God loves you and that you love Him back. That's one of the spiritual evidences that you are born again or that you are adopted in the family of God is that you have a love for Him and you recognize His love for you. A second issue is the possession of a spirit becoming children of God. That, in other words, your Holy Spirit, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit, overwhelms you and you yield to God. This possession that, that God would overwhelm you, change the way that you think, change your attitudes. Are we perfect? Certainly not. But our overall attitude, our overall character of our lives should change because we are adopted into the family of God. Number three, the present protection, conciliation supplies what we need. That you presently today can understand that you are protected by God because you are his son, his daughter, by adoption. That God has supplies, an unending supply of grace and mercy, supplies of wisdom for you because you're adopted. The fourth one is not so pleasant oftentimes, though, but it's good, and that is fatherly chastisements. See, as an adopted son or daughter of God, that means that God has the right to correct you because he's your father. He doesn't discern differently because, well, you're, you're a kid from this family, you're a kid from that family. No, you're my child. And so I have the right to chastise you or discipline you. That's the heart that God has for us. And we see that in our culture where some people will just ignore other people's children. I know when my children were little, they oftentimes complained, how come their friends got to do, get, get away with doing this thing or that thing? And my basic response is, but you're my child. So I have the, the right, the privilege, but also the responsibility to correct or to discipline or chastise. And then the fifth one is because of adoption, we have a glorious inheritance. You have a heavenly inheritance, not because you earn your way to heaven, but because you're adopted into the family of God. What a glorious, wonderful thing. Maybe you've read stories of children that have been adopted from other countries like Romania or China or places where they literally just warehouse kids and they ignore them. And those kids suffer from a lack of touch, a lack of love, a lack of physical nutrients, a lack of schooling. And many of them have all kinds of various difficulties. But when they're adopted by a Western country or Western set of parents that love them and nurture them, it's amazing that in a short time, how this child that was sort of off in the corner, scared to have any sort of interaction, blossoms and does tremendous things because of the love, because they've been adopted, and they're assured of their love and their care. You and I, we have, prior to coming to know Christ, we were beat up and in bondage to sin. And God says, when you respond to him in faith, you are now adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges that come with that. 
A heavenly inheritance, absolutely. But help in our present day to live a godly life, but also that expectation. God says, I've called you to be holy as I am holy. And so you get the whole package. And that's what God is talking about. Here in Galatians chapter 3, picking it up here in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You and I, we are now called sons, or we might be called daughters, but we are now children of God. You and I, you are a child of God. God looks upon you. There's nothing that you can do that, to get away with. Maybe when you were younger, you thought you got away with stuff. But with God, you never get away with anything. But you're a child of God. Because of what? Through faith. It's because of your faith, not an action that you performed, but faith. And when we talk about faith, please understand me. Faith is more than just an intellectual, I think there's a God out there. I think there's a big guy in the sky. Faith is literally trust and reliance upon. I rely upon God on a daily basis. Do you? Do you call out to God on a daily basis for the forgiveness of your sins, for strength to get through the day, for wisdom, for discernment, for provision? Are you crying out to the Lord for those things? That's what a child of God does through faith. And notice this, that we're sons of God, that we, because we're sons, we are oftentimes held to a higher standard. Sons and daughters of God, we need to be observant of God's laws because it's through faith. Now notice this, our standing before God is impressive. Please notice this. It, the idea here is because we are sons and daughters of God is we have a closeness to God. This is not just somebody that's on a list someplace else that I send food to. What this is is a closeness. It's God wants you to be close to him. Now, God doesn't move. God's standard doesn't change. He invites you in to be close to him, that you literally can go through your day talking to God like you might talk to a friend or a spouse that you literally can talk to God in that sense of a closeness, of familiarity with somebody. It's a place of affection. You are loved greatly by God. It's a place of special care and attention. Sometimes that attention is great. Man, God guided me through that. That's wonderful. Sometimes that attention chafes a little bit because God says to you and I, uh-uh. Others might do that, but you can't. And the amazing thing is it's not just the things that we do, it's even the things that go through our head, our thought life. And God says, uh-uh, don't you be thinking that way. So it's through faith. It's, our standing is impressive. We have a closeness to God, an affection, a special place of care and attention. But how do we get there? It's through faith in Christ, which means much more than just believing that he exists. A lot of people believe that there's a God somewhere. A lot of people want to believe in a heaven. Not so many want to believe in a hell because that implies punishment for evil doing. And if you're not right with God, the idea of hell is frankly a quite scary idea. But the Bible is clear on both. You have a choice. It's a binary choice, one or the other. You don't get option three or, or you know, all the above. It's either heaven or it's hell. And it all has to do with your faith in Christ. 
So it means much more than believing that God exists or that He did certain things. It's much more than believing Jesus was a historical figure or that Moses was real or that Noah was real. But it really means when we talk about faith, what we really mean is we're placing our trust in Him. I'm placing my trust in Jesus Christ for today. Even though I don't have enough money in the bank account, I'm still placing his, my trust in Him. Even though I'm sick or I've got this issue or that issue, I'm placing my trust in God for today. And I'm placing my trust in God for eternity. That's what it means to be a man or a woman who is a child or a son or a daughter of God through faith. I'm placing my absolute trust in Him. And notice this, verse 27. For as many as were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ. Now this is an interesting thing. Please don't misunderstand this. What is this baptized into? The word baptism means to be immersed. It means to be covered up with something. Of course, we think of baptism as dunking somebody in the water or sprinkling water on them. And biblically speaking, baptism is an act of faith that we, through an outward action, demonstrate what God has done in our lives. In other words, to have a baptism, and towards the end of the summer, we'll have a baptism here at the church. But the baptism that he's talking about here is not so much one of water, but it's being baptized into what? What does it say here? We're baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ. The idea here is that my identity, who I am, what I am, is all about Christ. It's no longer me. Could you imagine this? Think about a typical baptism. Maybe when you were baptized or you saw somebody get baptized, what did they do? Usually they lean them down into the water, and then they're momentarily, what? They're gone. They're totally consumed by the water. All you see is the water where they were. And then they come back out. And the idea is with a water baptism is the old person, the person who's not a son or a daughter of God, is dying to themselves under that water. And they're coming out as a born again, brand new person in Jesus Christ. Because you've been baptized, does that mean that you never sin? (laughs) Absolutely not. But again, it's an outward sign of what Christ has done in you. But in the context here, baptism means immersion. But what are we being immersed into? We're being immersed into Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about here. So it's different than just getting dipped or sprinkled into Jesus. You see, you and I, on a daily basis, we are to consider our lives immersed or consumed with Jesus Christ not just sprinkled with Jesus, or not just dipped into Jesus. But God wants you and I to be fully immersed or consumed with Jesus. Not just sprinkled, not just dipped, but fully immersed. Again, when a person is immersed in water, you don't even see that person anymore. And that's the idea. Not that we develop gills and breathe underwater, but the idea that What others see of you is Jesus. When you go to work, what they see is Jesus. That when you're with your family, what they see is Jesus. That's the idea that you and I would be immersed. That we would live as people who are baptized into Jesus. It's not so much that they see you with your quirks and dysfunctional things that go on in your life. 
Instead, what they mostly see would be Jesus. We all have our quirks. We all still have our dysfunctional. We all have our inadequacies. But what do people see about you most of the time? Do they most of the time, do they see Jesus? Or most of the time, do they see you? And then every once in a while, a little bit of Jesus. And what God wants to do is make that totally different. That what people see of you most of the time is Jesus. And then every once in a while, a slip up where they see some of your old nature. But that's what God wants. Understand this. Baptism, in this sense, the immersion into Jesus is what really saves you. Not the physical act of going underwater. Please don't misunderstand me. But the act of being baptized or immersed into Jesus is what really saves you. We talk about it as faith. But faith is one that trusts totally in somebody. Totally trusting in Jesus that then he would transform me to make me a son or daughter of God. That's what we really mean when we say born again. It's not just a phrase. It's not just a religious thing that we do. But to be radically born again by Jesus means that you are immersed into him. And what others see of you is Christ, no longer yourself. You see, you or I could be dunked underwater a thousand different times. But if we don't let Jesus consume us, then we really haven't done what's called baptism or be baptized into Christ. What I want to make a distinction here, water baptism is indeed something that God instructs us to do. Water baptism is not what saves you. It's your act of faith. It's your act of utter dependence upon God. It's your act of crying out to God and saying, God, forgive me my sins. Make me a brand new son, a brand new daughter in you. After you've done that, God does say for you to be baptized, a public declaration. I am following Jesus no matter what. That's the idea of water baptism. Here in this verse, Galatians chapter 3, he's talking about being baptized into Christ, that you'd be immersed in Christ, that you'd be consumed with Christ. When you are that, then you are adopted into the family of God. And that's what he's describing here for us. And because of this, because we're sons and daughters of Christ by faith, and because we have been immersed into Jesus Christ, that we have put on Christ. And literally, it's the idea of putting on clothes. Doesn't clothes change an individual? Or at least your perception of them? If you see me with a suit on, you're thinking usually, is it Easter? Is it Christmas? What did I miss? Because I don't normally wear a, a suit or a jacket. But if I do, you sort of go, wait a minute, something's amiss here, right? If you go to a super fancy restaurant in flip-flops and cut-off jeans and a, and a tank top, are people going to look at you weird? Yeah. The dress, it doesn't change the personality, but the dress is what you're presenting to other people. And so the idea is that we would put on Christ. In other words, every morning you would wake up and say, Jesus, I want you on me. I want to give off Jesus to others. I want to put on the hat of Jesus or the helmet of salvation. I want to put on that breastplate of righteousness. I want to put on the belt of truth. Because I am going out into the world today, and I want to represent you well. Some of you work for different companies, 
And in that company, you're required to wear certain types of clothes. You know, maybe it's a certain color or you have a company uniform. And when you wear that uniform, you are what? Representing that company. Even if it's on your lunch break, people still look at you and go, oh, well, you work for so-and-so. That's the idea with our Christianity, that every day we would put on Christ to represent Christ to others. So we are all sons and daughters because of our faith in Christ. We've been immersed or consumed with Christ, having put on Christ, and it is a conscious decision. I want to follow Jesus today. And then verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, there is no distinction between God about somebody's ethnicity, that would be Jew or or Greek or Gentile. Either you're born Jewish or you're not born Jewish, and God says that doesn't matter. Free or slave. Free was somebody who usually had uh, upward mobility. They were the affluent. They were the well-educated. They were the ones that were the in our vernacular today, the lawyers, the doctors, the engineers, you know, the CEOs of companies. That would be the free people. And the slaves... In the, in the time of Paul's writing, they were literally slaves. In our vernacular today, it's the guy that's the janitor, the guy that has to show up before the CEO does and get everything clean and stay afterwards. He's the guy that if something breaks, everybody blames him, even though he had nothing to do with it. He's the server at the restaurant. The cook gets the credit, the server just brings the food out. If the food's terrible, who does the customer yell at? The server, right? So the free is the person of position or affluence. The slave is the person who has no position, who has no affluence, who's poor, or whose life is dictated by other people. And sometimes in our work environment, that's exactly how we feel. I get to work today because the boss says I can. I can't work tomorrow because the boss says I can't. And I'm sort of stuck. But in God's economy... The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for only the affluent or only for the poor, but it is for all of us. In God's economy, because we've been adopted in the family of God, we're no longer looking at somebody's skin color or the language they speak. We're no longer looking at the type of clothes they wear or the car they drive, what part of the neighborhood they live in, because we're all one in Christ, because we've been adopted into the family of God. And then it's no longer male nor female. Now, please understand, in the time frame that Paul was writing, this is a radical statement, that men and women would be on equal footing. You see, in Paul's day, a woman couldn't go out and conduct business. She couldn't own things of her own. She oftentimes had to be accompanied by a male family member just to go to the market. She spent most of her day uh, cooking, cleaning, and cooking and cleaning, cooking and cleaning. Women, how would you like to have your entire days consumed with nothing more than cooking and cleaning? And then when you do all that, you get no credit for it. And the men in this culture were expectant. Maybe you've seen things on TV of of how women are treated in different parts of the world, and you're appalled by it. 
but see in God's economy, men and women are equal. Now, please, this is a side note, but please understand, if you don't know this yet, I got a little bit of surprising news for you. Men and women are created equal, but different. Okay? Do you, do you realize that? I hope you all do. In our current culture, our society, we've tried to meld everybody together. But women and men are physically different. Emotionally, we're different. Our strengths and weaknesses are different. It's not wrong. It's different. My children, when they were growing up, if they broke something, I turned into fix-it dad. Dad, would you fix this? But if they got a scratch or a boo-boo or an owie, they went to mom. Why? Because mom was much more nurturing than me. I'd look at them. I don't see any blood coming out or only a little bit of blood. You're good. Rub some dirt on and keep going. Okay? That's a dad attitude. That's okay. But that's not something that's appropriate for all the time. Mom tends a lot more to, to make a big deal out of it. And, hey, let's make you cookies and milk because you got a splinter in your finger. I'm like, cookies and milk for a splinter? Come on. If you're in the hospital, that's one thing. But, but you see that we're just created different. Not wrong, not superior to one another, equal but different. In the time frame that Paul was writing, this is a radical statement. He's writing to Jews who are saying, you know what? Those other people with the different skin color, the different culture, in God's economy, they're the same. Those other people, whether they're affluent or poor, free or slave, we're all the same in Christ. Whether you're male or female, we're the same in Christ. That's what he's saying. In the family of God, we are all one in what? Jesus Christ. The only criteria, or the only distinction amongst all of mankind is, are you a believer in Jesus? God looks at all of mankind, spread throughout the world, spread throughout generations, and his only question is essentially this. What have you done with my son Jesus? I'm a poor beggar. I'm in prison for murder. I'm a wealthy individual. I come from the right family, the right heritage. And God asks them the same question. What have you done with my son Jesus Christ? And if the answer is I've responded to Christ in faith, my life is immersed, consumed with Jesus then God says you're all one family. There is, in God's economy or God's system, there's not room for racism, for us looking down or admiring somebody because of the color of their skin or what part of the world they grew up in or how affluent they are or they aren't. No matter what your baggage is in the past, God's question to all of us is, what have you done with my son Jesus? So we are all one in Christ Jesus. We have equal standing because of our faith in Christ. God doesn't look at anybody and say, well, you came from this area, so you're a little bit more spiritual. I can't help it. I wasn't born in Texas, right? And I know all the spiritual people are born in Texas. Okay, I was born in that far-off liberal land of fruits and nuts. I can't help that, California. Okay, So you can look down at me for being raised in California, but in Christ's eyes, we're all the same. And that's the idea here. It doesn't matter what your background is, how much you've messed up, or how well you've done. 
it is, there is no differences. We are all one in Christ because we have been adopted into the family of Christ. In a family scenario, let's say a, a set of parents decide to adopt a child from China and a child from Africa and then another child from Russia. As they bring these children together, they would say, you're all my children. You have different skin tones, you have different languages, but you're adopted into our family, and now you're all ours. Now, I'll treat you the same, I'll discipline you the same, I'll give you the same opportunities. And that's God's idea of us, being adopted into the family of God. Sadly, unfortunately, even today, Churches and Christians draw lines where there should not be any lines. There should not be, well, that's the black church, or that's the the white church. That's the, you know, the, the first Baptist South Korean soul church or whatever. It shouldn't be that way. We are all one in Christ. Now, I understand culturally when we have different languages, if there's a a, a cultural language that your native tongue is in, and you like to hang out with them, that's perfectly fine. But in Christ's economy, there should be no difference. There shouldn't be, well, you're this church versus that church. There shouldn't be the white, the yellow, the brown, the green churches. It ought to be we're one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. And then he goes on here in verse 29, and he says this, And if you are Christ, so he made several statements. He said, look, You're sons and daughters of God through faith. You've been immersed or baptized into Christ. You put on Jesus, okay? Then there's no distinction, Greek, Jew, uh, slave, free, male, female, we're all one in Christ. Since all these things, or if all these things are true, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What did God promise to Abraham? He promised him multitude of descendants, but he also promised that through Abraham's seed, in other words, his offspring, but singular, the Messiah, the Redeemer, would come into the world. You and I, by faith, become descendants, spiritual descendants of Abraham, incorporating the promises that God made to Abraham, that you would be a child of God irregardless of what your parents, great-grandparents, whatever your ethnic heritage is, whether you're descendants of Mr. or Mrs. Super really nice people or you're descendants of, you know, Charles Manson or whatever it might be, we are adopted in the family of God and we receive the spiritual blessings of being a child of God. The adoption by God as Abraham's seed. So look at this. If you are Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are born again through Jesus Christ, if you've put on Jesus, if you are immersed in Christ, if we are Christ, then then what? If we are in Christ, then our place is in eternity. Our home is heaven. The things of this life, they can get frustrating, they can get discouraging, We can get excited about it, but we never are to be too attached to it. You get a promotion at work, wonderful. I thank the Lord for that. But I'm looking for my ultimate promotion, which is where? Heaven. Okay. Hey, things fall apart. 
I get fired. I get laid off. I get blamed for something I never did. It's a bummer. I'm sad. But my hope is still one day I'm going to spend eternity with Christ. And this job or this circumstance no longer matters. If you're in Christ, your home is in heaven. You're here temporarily. You're to do the best that you can. You're to be a good steward while you're here. But understand your goal is eternity. You're a pilgrim. You're on a journey. And you're to do the best that you can along this way. But your ultimate goal is to be in heaven. Our place is eternity because we are sons and daughters of God. But we need to also find our place in society. In society as we are in Christ. Because we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. You have a society of believers. Brothers and sisters. Some of which live in different cultures. Some of which speak different languages. But you're one in Christ. No longer should we be saying, well, they're that way and I'm this way. Instead, we're one in Christ. Because we are in Christ. We have a place in society. We also have a place in history. Because we are part of God's plan. Going all the way back to Genesis, when God spoke promises to Abraham, because you've been adopted in the family of God, you are receiving the promises that God had promised. We are spiritually part of this heritage of Abraham, although we're not physically part of Abraham's descendants, but we are part of Abraham's promises by faith in Christ. If we are what? Verse 26, if we are sons and daughters of Christ through Christ Jesus. Verse 27, if we've been baptized or immersed into Jesus, if we've put on Christ, then therefore there is no distinction between Jews or Greeks, free or slave, male or female, because we're all one in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs. You get to inherit it. Now think about somebody who is an inheritance. It's something that they get by simply because of their family relationships. It's not because they're as talented as their mom and dad or their great-grandfather or whoever else. They just have gotten it because their family was wealthy or their family was educated or their family did this thing. It doesn't mean that individual person is bad or good. They just are receiving it because they have an inheritance. How many of us would love to have an inheritance of some rich person somewhere, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful to have that inheritance, to say, well, you know, the moment I was born, I had a million dollars in my name or a billion dollars. Most of us would say, yeah, that's pretty cool. We have something much more valuable than money or silver and gold. We have a spiritual inheritance because we're children of God and we've been adopted into God's family. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 1, look at this. Now I say that their heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. Now this sounds like a little bit of a twist here, but understand this. He's continuing with the same idea, the idea of being adopted in the family of God. Now he's looking at a family somebody who is a heir in a family, in this case, a wealthy family, that they have slaves. When that person is a child, they have the inheritance that one day they'll get to be the boss, the master. 
But at the moment, the slaves have authority over this child. That's the idea here. The idea is this child is a minor, somebody who's young. It doesn't specify a certain age. It's the idea they haven't come to be recognized as adults yet. Both in Jewish and Greek cultures, there is a definitive coming of age. Some cultures have certain ceremonies or celebrations when somebody turns a certain age, they recognize you are now an adult or we're considering you an adult. Those are rites of passage and many cultures have them, which are great. Uh, in Rome, or the Roman custom, was at a specific age, there was, excuse me, no specific age, but there was a declaration when the father deemed the son to be mature enough, he would make a public declaration at that appointed time and say, you are now mature, or you now have to take responsibility. So you get the inheritance, but then you also have the responsibility. So he says here, in this idea, is the child doesn't differ from the slave. In other words, the child has to obey mom and dad no matter what. Yet he's still an heir. But is under, verse 2, but under guardians and stewards until the time is appointed by the father. So take, think, think of a wealthy family. The wealthy family, mom or dad says, okay, slave so-and-so, you're the, be the guardian of this child. The child has to obey like a tutor or a guardian has to obey them. Even though at some point when that child is mature, they're going to flip roles and be the boss. That's what he's describing here for us. So they had to exercise themselves or be under guardians until that appointed time. Even so, here's the point, so even, so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Just like a child who has an inheritance but can't exercise it yet, is still under the authority of the guardians or the stewards over them. So you and I, prior to our faith in Christ, prior to our immersion in Christ, prior to our putting on Christ, we were children and were in bondage under the elementary principles. Let me point out two things for you. Even so, even as... So it's an idea, the com com comparison here. Even so, the idea is that we, were we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are also heirs to a promise. Galatians 3.26 and 3.29. The law is our guardian. The rules of God is our guardian that watch over us. But then he goes on to talk about these elementary principles. It would be the idea of sort of the ABCs of the universe. And what that means is the basic way that the people around us, the world around us live. People live by standards such as don't ever turn the other cheek. Don't let somebody take advantage of you. Uh, be sure to usurp or, or, excuse me, but dominate or be sure to, to show who you are. You see, the elementary principles is our flesh. It's the nature of people around us. It's the nature that if you get a piece of paper, all of a sudden, you're the boss over other people. And if you don't have that piece of paper, you can't be the boss. The idea of you get what you deserve. That's a fundamental principle of the world that we live in. But the biblical idea is absolutely the opposite. You don't get what you deserve. That's what we call mercy. 
You and I deserve hell, and God says, I'm going to save you from that. You don't get what you deserve. Biblically speaking, there is nothing like karma. But people around us constantly are talking about that sort of thing. Well, I got, you know, five green lights today because I helped a little old lady across the street or something else like that. These elementary principles, we are no longer to be in bondage to them. We're no longer to have them rule our lives. The idea of a give and take, the idea that if I, if I do enough good stuff that I deserve certain things. What you deserve is hell. But God wants to bless you as his child, as his son, as his daughter. He wants to give you spiritual blessings, not because you earn it, not because you deserve it, but as a heavenly father who loves you, he wants to give you these heavenly blessings. We, we all have grown up in bondage to the world around us. Slaves to the world system around us, to these false teachings, false teachings about how do we get ahead, false teachings about God rewards those who do good, false teachings about God wants you to be materially wealthy, False teachings, God helps those that help themselves. False teachings like this. And God wants to set you free from that as you're immersed in Christ. That you would understand what it means to be a child of God. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. So he's taken this example from a family that was in that culture of Paul's day. <coughs> Excuse me. A family with a son or a daughter who was going to at one time inherit the family business, but at the moment was under the authority of slaves or guardians. So you and I were under the authority of the world system that we lived in, how you grew up, what the culture was like when you grew up, maybe the things that others did to you, the insecurities, the anxieties that you felt, or maybe the things that you've done to sort of just make it through life. Those elementary principles you were under bondage under them. And now Christ wants to set you free for something radically different. And so when it says in the fullness of time, like in the Roman customs, when a father would declare that his son is now of age and he gets to take the responsibilities and the inheritance. So at the fullness of time, at God's perfect timing, Christ came. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ, in God's perfect timing, came a little over 2,000 years ago. Now, the world at that time was far, far away from God. The world at that time was dominated by the Roman Empire. All of the developed world of that time was under the authority of Rome. Think about it in the Mediterranean basin, all the way up into England, throughout Spain, France, Germany across through Turkey, North Africa, and of course through Israel. Israel, excuse me, Rome dominated those things. If you didn't live under the Roman influence, you were considered a backwards barbarian people, okay? People that weren't under the influence of Rome were the, what today we think of as a third world country. And it was at this time, with a Roman common language, with a Roman road system that went to all the reaches of the known world at that time, that Jesus came, born of a virgin, 
lived a perfect life here on earth, died a substitutionary death on the cross. Three days later, after his death, was raised from the grave and then eventually ascended into heaven, having been seen by many individuals at different times. At one time, his, uh, his resurrected body seen by over 500 people. At the writing of 1 Corinthians, it says that most of those are still alive today. Jesus did all that because it was just the right time in God's timing. So the gospel message would spread. We're reading the book of Galatians, which is a region in what is today modern-day Turkey. And the gospel had spread there. The good news of Jesus Christ had spread there. So it was in the fullness of time that God sent. For what purpose? God sent his son for what purpose? Verse 2, or excuse me, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as son. Redeem means to purchase out of slavery. It's the idea, sort of, the idea that somebody's in prison or in jail and you get to bond them out. In this case, though, redeemed is not just a temporary bond, but it's a totally purchased out of, that you're absolutely set free. The word redemption really comes from the idea of a ransom, whether it's a kidnapping and somebody pays the ransom and the child is set free, or somebody is a prisoner of war, somebody becomes a, a slave because of war. And the idea is that the losing party pays a ransom or redemption to get that person back, and they're set free. Spiritually, we are in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to the world around us. We're in bondage to our own thought life. And then, of course, Satan wants to trip us up, and God has redeemed us or bought us, set us free from a life consumed with self and what everyone else thinks, to a life that's immersed in Christ, to a life that's set free that we might follow Christ. So he's redeemed us who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. We were in bondage to sin and the elementary principles of this world. We couldn't help ourselves because that's all we knew. Depending on how you grew up, what sort of heritage you have, what sort of spiritual heritage you have, there are things that you did that you knew no better. You just did it because that was the only thing that you knew. And now God wants to set you free from that, to make you brand new. There's a hymn that almost everybody in America knows. And we have numerous versions of this hymn. That hymn is called Amazing Grace. And maybe you're familiar with the story of the man that wrote that song. Maybe you're not. Let me tell you a little bit about him. It was written by a man named John Newton. It's one of the most popular songs. And of course, modern uh, musicians have taken that and added different verses to it or different styles of music behind it. But it's a song that most of us, no matter what, we can sing. Even people who don't have any relationship with God, they love to sing Amazing Grace. But he was the only child whose mother died when he was seven years old. At a time period when there was no social welfare system, there was no foster care, no CPS. And he became a sailor at sea when he was 11 years old. Now, being a sailor isn't like being a sailor today. If you were a child and oftentimes they were children when they became sailors, you were, the, you were 
expendable. Living on a ship didn't mean three warm meals a day. It was dark, damp, danger of your life, hard work constantly. So he was an orphan at seven, went to sea as a sailor as 11 years old. As a sailor, he grew up and eventually became a captain of a ship. But not just any kind of ship. He was a captain of a slave ship. He was a captain of a ship that transported slaves from the coast of Africa, primarily to America and to the Caribbean. He was involved and active in the horrible denigration, inhumanity of the slave trade. For most of us, it's much worse than we could ever imagine what mankind did to others. When he was 23 on March 10th of 1748, when his ship was in intimate danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland, he cried out for God's mercy. He was abandoned because his mom died when he was seven, became a servant or a slave on a ship as a sailor, ended up being promoted to the rank of captain, but his trade was taking advantage of other people in the most deplorable sort of ways. And then when he finally was in the moment of danger, when his his ship was going to sink, then he finally cried out to God for mercy, and he found it. He found God to be merciful. But he never forgot how amazing it was that God had received him. He knew that his mom had died. He knew he had been a slave on a ship. He knew he was in a deplorable trade. And he cried out to God, and God found him. He had on his mantle sort of this saying carved in wood over the mantle of his fireplace from Deuteronomy 15, 15, which said, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord has redeemed you. This is the man that wrote Amazing Grace because he understood his own depravity. He understood the depth of his own sin and how much God had set him free. I don't know what your background is. Maybe you can relate to him because maybe you had a a rough or difficult childhood. Maybe as a young person you were taken advantage of by others. Maybe you participated in a trade or a business that was degrading and taking advantage of others. Maybe you've taken advantage of others. Just use people for your own personal gain. I need you to understand this. If you will cry out to God for mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve. You will find not only mercy and grace. Grace is God giving you things that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. This man, John Newton, deserved hell because of his behavior, his actions. But he didn't receive hell because God was merciful to him. But then the grace. God wants to give us so much more. He wants to consider you adopted children, adopted sons and daughters. God wants to bless you to walk in the presence of Christ. To every day, expect God to bless you. Every day, expect God to work in your life. This is the idea of receiving this adoption as sons. John Newton was a man whose mother died when he was young, grew up in a system that was abusive towards him as a young sailor, eventually became the abuser of others, both men on his ship, but then ultimately, of course, the slaves that he marketed in. 
And God redeemed him out of that. And he pinned what you and I know as amazing grace. It's not just a pretty song. It is a pretty song. But there's so much more depth behind it. That God would take me and rescue me when I recognize that I don't deserve it. But God would rescue me. That I would be set free from the bondage of my own past, maybe things I've done, or what others have done to me and set me radically free. That I would understand that I've been redeemed or purchased. That I'm no longer under the law, that I might receive the adoption as a son or a daughter of God. And then therefore, it says, verse 6, because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts to cry, Abba, Father. Because you've been adopted, you have now a relationship with your great God that you can call him Abba, Father or Daddy. It's the idea of a close, intimate relationship between a son or a daughter and their father, that they feel comfortable coming to him. They feel comfortable saying, Dad, I broke this. Dad, I messed up. That's the idea, that you can go to your great, heavenly, loving Father and say to Him, Dad, I messed up. Lord, I need your help. God, I'm stuck again. Would you deliver me? And God will be faithful to do that. The idea, again, is that we are the sons and daughters of God. According to Hebrews, we have access to the throne room of grace because of God, because of God's only Son sent for us that you and I can understand that through Christ we have a tremendous relationship. You were, whatever your background is, like a John Newton. Somebody maybe who had difficulty growing up, maybe somebody that was abused by others, beaten up by the world system. Maybe you were one that beat up others, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And God says, I want to adopt you. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And it comes by faith. But by faith, what we mean is we're totally immersed in Jesus. That I put on Christ every day. That every day that I don't do something the way Christ would want me to do it, it breaks my heart because it reflects poorly on my heavenly Father. That you would be a person, a man or a woman, who would, who would cry out to God, God, would you help me today to represent you well? Lord, the inconveniences of life are small in comparison to the idea that I have a heavenly hope. I know I'm going to spend eternity in heaven and that today, God, you will empower me to live for you. That's what it means to be an adopted daughter, to be an adopted son, and that you have all the rights and privileges of that person, and there isn't one, of that person that lived a perfect life, that you always did everything just right. I said there isn't anyone. I was mistaken. There's one. That is Jesus. And so God counts you like he counts his only begotten son. He looks at you and says, I want that relationship with you. Come to me. God set the table. Dinner's ready. The door's open. He says, come in. Rest with me. Rely upon me. And I will give you these spiritual blessings. I'll give you a hope that surpasses your circumstances. I'll give you a peace that is stronger than your anxiety. I will give you a purpose for life 
Even when everyone else in life says you're worthless, I'll give you a purpose. You are precious in my sight. That's what God says to us. But it all begins with what? Faith in Jesus Christ.